All right, welcome to Analyzing Mormonism. Yeah, hi. <laughs> so we today are going to talk about something that I don't think a lot of podcasters have talked about. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't think it's a hot topic. <laughs> yet, but So we're talking about masturbation, and then we're going to talk about it through the lens of the church. And we're here with Natasha Helper. Um, hi, Natasha. <laughs> I think it's a hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a topic that everybody has on their mind, but whether or not we're talking about it is a separate thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Gracie, I think a lot of people will be familiar with who you are, but do you mind introducing yourself a little bit? Yeah, no, for sure. I'm Natasha Helfer. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm also a certified sex therapist. I've been in the field for almost 30 years, which is hard to believe. And I guess my biggest claim to fame is that, sadly, is that I was excommunicated um, three years ago now, has been three years, somewhere around there, uh, for really my advocacy in the community around sexual health um, concepts and topics, which I've been doing for a long time. I started a blog, I believe back around somewhere 2012, it was called The Mormon Therapist. It was kind of like a dear Abby for Mormons, right? But um, so I thought I'd get a lot of questions about parenting and about depression or perfectionism. And I got pretty much 80% questions about sex. Right? Wow. <laughs> so, is that website still, is that still running or is that still it's, up? It's still up. I don't oh, run okay. it anymore. It's through, it, uh, Pathios um, kind of uh, brought me on board to blog with them. And then after a while, okay. stopped blogging. So, but they still have it up. Yep. So I wrote, a, I, I my biggest, my big kind of step kind of towards writing something that I knew would be problematic for the church was a blog post called, um, you know, why masturbation isn't a sin. And so that's kind of what put me on the map, I guess, a little bit. You think but, that's what started it? Was that? I think that's what, well, I think that's what started a lot more of my popularity. I mean, I had popularity before then, but that's kind of a post that went viral a little bit. I mean, I don't know what viral really means, but I had thousands and thousands and thousands of views. And then, <laughs> and then, um, and yeah, and it was definitely the beginning of me noticing me being treated differently at church. Like, okay, LDS Family Services is no longer going to refer to me. Okay. Or, you know, um, it wasn't, I wasn't brought in to talk about it like for like nobody ever did that back then, but I just started noticing, you know, certain things like um, how I was treated, certain callings I would be eligible for or not, oh. whether or not people were going to refer to me and come to me and trust me as a mental health practitioner, even though I've never had a problem with my license or anything like that, right? So things like that, yeah. That's crazy. Um, so. I don't, so, I, so when you were excommunicated during, during this whole thing, I watched, I was, I watched the whole thing with you standing outside the church because you weren't even allowed to go in. Right. Cause you had. Right. Well, I was, I mean, I was, the idea was that I was going to be allowed to go in, but they, and we had signed a release saying that of course nobody would be recording, neither me nor my witnesses. I had all my notes on my phone. I had been, I had been offered recording, um, I think you can put them, you know, like under your clothing or, you know, and I had, I, I, I was really committed to going through the process kind of like, here's how the church right. does it. It's their club. I'm going to follow their rules. But I did have my notes on my phone and I guess they were worried that I was going to record on my phone, which I don't. Oh, you weren't allowed the phone. I wasn't okay. allowed to bring in my phone. 
And yeah, after a week of following all their rules and trying to make everything goes, that was just kind of like a last straw for me. They had a little basket where they wanted me to put my phone. So I was like kind of turning my phone over to them, which felt really uncomfortable. They did offer to print off my notes, but I'm like, so you're going to have access to my notes and look, I mean, I, I'm like, those notes are not, I mean, I don't know what you're asking me. And I had prepared a lot of answers and it was kind of the last straw. And I said, well, I'm not doing it. I'm not giving you my phone. And then they were like, well, then you're not coming in. And I was like, fine. And I walked out. Right. And I, I was just so frustrated. And Maybe if I would have been given two or three minutes, I would have calmed down and gone back in. But at that point, they just shut everything down. They didn't allow any of my witnesses in. They didn't. People who had traveled from out of state on their own time, their own time to come witness for me. Uh, All of the women who were witnessing for me were temple recommend holders, were, you know, active members of their wards. um, And you know, how they were treated, like they were left on the curb. Nobody was allowed inside the building one at a time. It it was, it was kind of shocking. I was shocked at how yeah. kind of uh, um, rude and, you know, here's this building that says all visitors welcome. And here's Temple recommend holding women sitting on the curb and not being allowed to use the bathroom. Yeah. Um, it, it was shocking. Yeah. I remember because I watched the because I think Latter-day stories and Mormon stories like were releasing this footage. And I remember just being angry for you. And and like as I had just left my marriage because I was queer because I'm gay. And I remember thinking like Natasha represents like like healthy sexuality. Like that's what you represent. And and all the science around that. And the church is is excommunicating her. And so how can I be how can I ever stay in this church? I, like it was mm-hmm. I don't know you you leaving or you this whole thing was really big in my I'm leaving the church. So, yeah, yeah, it was really, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, how the church functions in this way. It's just like, you know, they, they charged me for apostasy and for not supporting, you know, the leaders of the church, um, even though they had written me a letter telling me the things that they were upset with me about, right, which was much more specific. And it was all around sexual issues, like my support for gay marriage my support for masturbation being seen as normative human behavior that we don't need to make, especially adolescents feel so guilty about or treat as an addiction or things of that right. nature. And then they also had concerns about um, how I treat um, issues around pornography, right? Because again, we we usually in a lot of religious communities, not just Mormonism, people will treat it as an, as an addiction or an illness. And I'm like, just because you don't agree with something, just because you have standards, it's fine if the Mormons don't want to have pornography be part of their values. But if you watch it, that doesn't automatically make you sick just because your church doesn't agree with that behavior. Right. And it's not an effective mode of treatment anyway. It's not best standards yeah. of care. Um, usually it's a it's an issue between partners as to an agreement, you know, and there's bad feelings and betrayal and there's, you know, there's a lot of problems around pornography. I'm not trying to minimize that, but just how we were treating it, that just the person who views it as automatically an addict was very, very problematic. Um, So those, you know, those were all the reasons that they wrote me, but then I was charged for apostasy and not, not supporting the leaders, which again is not binary. It's not like everything the leaders say I didn't agree with. It's not, there's plenty of things, you know, as a member of the church that I was like, 
yeah, when you talk about Jesus Christ, when you talk about loving your neighbors, when you talk about charity, when you talk about all these things, I'm totally on board. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. it's just this particular area that I happen to have expertise on that, I, yeah, I can't be on board with you all on, you know. And if meaning, if, you know, I, I grew up in a Mormon culture back when I was a young woman where they told us often, do not be a blind sheep. We are not here about creating blind sheep. So you have to get your own testimony. You know, you have to get your own convictions and you have to do your own work to, you know, follow the Lord. And I took that seriously. So I'm not going to just follow a leader. I mean, I'm going to respect a leader. I'm going to sustain a leader, but I'm not just going to blindly obey a leader. Um, That was not Mormonism to me. Right. And so that was very confusing that I couldn't have opinions or, um, and especially not really opinions like facts and, you know, education that went against some of these leaders, you know, kind of opinions that are really quite um, dated in their mythology and their inaccuracy. Membership as a, as a, because of that, I, the whole thing was just very sad and confusing to me. Yeah. Dang like, I feel like you have really good leaders to teach you that at least, but the church, I feel like the church does not teach us. They teach us to be blind sheep. Like, yeah, yeah well, I feel like you left out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the church has gone through some generational things. And I will say, since I'm a lot older than the two of you, is that in the nineties, when everybody was against gay marriage, uh, the church was much more be your own person. But then as we started seeing the battle around homosexual rights, the church became much more about you follow us. There was was a bit of a difference in kind of the tone. Um, I mean, the church has always been authoritarian. You know, the church has Uh always been about, you know, come, come follow, you know, follow the prophet, things like that. But just, I would just say culturally, that's something I noticed was that as they started losing the war with gay rights, they became more and more, you know, Elder Oaks, you will follow us even if we're wrong. Like, I never heard that when I was a young woman. I never heard, you will follow us even if we're wrong. Yeah. Um, but that's, I think they've gotten more anxious and fear-based in their approach. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I remember being taught like, oh, they won't be wrong. So like, you don't have to be afraid. Like, oh, follow the prophet. He won't lead you astray. So like, I never thought that they could be wrong. But, but now yeah. it's like, I've heard them, I've heard somebody, one of the leaders say, like, even if we're wrong, you'll be blessed for following us. Right. Like, so it's, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing that has shifted, not just gay rights, but we're having a big exodus in, in all religions, you know, so people mm-hmm. are leaving organized religion more than ever. So I think both their reaction to people leaving and their reaction to some of these social justice issues that they have, you know, zero capacity to keep up with um is is what's causing some of these issues yeah well um we just talked about this yesterday but elder holland says or said in an interview oh um you know the world goes here and we go here and the world goes here and we go here and eventually we're where the world was to begin with and and then he says oh i've said too much which he did say too much because (laughs) because he, he he let the cat out of the bag they are following the world and eventually they're going to have to accept some of these things in order to just keep existing. Like they're going to have to 
eventually accept that gay people are fine and normal, even if they don't allow them to get married and sealed forever, they have to accept that it's not just a, the, a sin next to murder to be a gay person. Like, anyway. Yeah, the current website of the church has really some pretty horrific things under, you know, explaining their position on being gay, being homosexual, um, mm -hmm. including a scripture that they've referred to right there on the front page of it that, you know, it's better if you have um, a noose, you know, hung around your neck. It says that on their website right now. Yes, right now, oh, right now in 2023. It, it's really um, so unresponsible with the rates that we know we have around suicide and um, and also uh, hate crimes around these issues. Oh my goodness, holy cow, that's sickening. Irresponsible is a good word for that. That's super, that's awful. I didn't know that. I think it's the kindest word. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. Um, this like, um, so I know this isn't about trans rights, but um, they, they've done research and found that being able to transition to your the, the the gender that you feel is your gender is uh what was it like 60 percent likely to get you out of depression which is way better than any antidepressants on oh, the market it's something like that don't quote me but mm -hmm. uh, it's like just being able to be yourself it keeps you alive better than any antidepressants on the market well it's same with being queer like being able to identify that mm -hmm. way and the way that you want like Elder, uh, I know this isn't about being queer or anything, but um, that number where he says there are no homosexuals in the church, like just let us identify however we want. Like, right. Have to, yeah. Yeah, that's the assumption that you know homosexuality is part of of the mortal, um, like imperfections, right? That we ca we came it's from this perfect world. world but now we're in this fallen world. And so nobody should identify as homosexual because, you know, ideal, you know, you were once clean and pure and only because you're here in the world, are you dealing with this quote unquote temptation? So just to do a quick correction, I'm looking at the website again. It's, um, it's not the one about hanging yourself. It's if a man also lies with mankind as he lies with a woman, which is Leviticus 2013. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood oh. shall be upon them. So that, ew, that's, ew. that's the scripture. And that's currently on it. And then when you look at when they say, um, we may not know precisely why some people feel attracted to others of the same sex, um, but the Savior has a perfect understanding of every challenge we experience. So again, <laughs> instead of seeing this as just a normal part of human diversity, this is presented as a challenge, you know, temptation. Um, and so it's, and it's, it's, to die. And it's a challenge to be overcome. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, now that we're depressed, <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is depressing. It's, it's harmful. It's abusive. This is, is flat out spiritual abuse. This is spiritual coercion, uh, that the church, yeah. um, you know, has been doing for, for decades. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Dang well, on that note, so we have some slides that we prepared concerning masturbation. And like, so we like to share some of the history about whatever we're talking about. And so we have, you can just go ahead and add it. So we have some slides 
Um, don't you love this picture? I love it. <laughs> I, that's a very sexy picture. Very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so did you make that one? Or did you that? I just want this picture. Okay, okay so um, the first thing I wanted to talk about these, some of the myths where you say you talked about myths about surrounding um, people's ideas of masturbation. Um, do you want to read this one? Yeah, Samuel Tussaud in 1758, a Catholic neurologist and Vatican advisor, caused a revolution in Euro-American medical opinion when he published an edition of Onania, beginning in 1758, linking masturbation to insanity. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Like I hadn't heard that before, and I thought that was super wild that they thought that it caused insanity. And yeah. Oh yeah, the history of masturbation. It's been blamed for a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it's always been shamed. We watched, we started watching this documentary. I cannot remember what it's called. Like Sticky. Sticky. Have you seen that one? Sticky, a self-love story. It's like, they go through like the, like how it's been seen as okay in history and how it's been seen as not okay. And so like, it's just really interesting to hear. And then all these uh, like health um, uh, uh, sex therapists and things like that are talking about it. Anyway, so it's, so I'd recommend that to anyone who wants to learn more. We haven't finished it but so far it's been really yeah, fun. It's been really fun, yeah. <laughs> All right, next one. So this is from Snopes. The creation of cornflakes was part of John Harvey Kellogg's broader advocacy for a plain, bland diet, as all American food, I mean, as all white people food is. Without referring to cornflakes in particular, Kellogg elsewhere recommended a plain, bland diet as one of the several methods to discourage masturbation. Yeah, so I thought that was super interesting. They talk about this in the documentary too, is that Kellogg's cereal and then uh, what was the cracker? Graham crackers. The graham crackers. Yeah, like, like oh, if you have boring food, if you have bland food, then you won't masturbate. Don't stimulate yourself Don't in any way, things. even in spicy. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's just super funny to me. Okay. And then this one's a little bit longer and I don't know if we need to read all these. Um, but so, so I think her name, I think how you say it is Joycelyn Elders. She was the um, Surgeon General of the United States from 1993 to 1994. And she was an American pediatrician and public health administrator. And she advocated for that masturbation is super fine and healthy and we shouldn't shame it in adolescence. And uh, do you want to read some of the highlighted parts? Um, yeah. So right here, she was at a United Nations conference on AIDS and was asked whether it would be appropriate to promote masturbation as a means of preventing young people from engaging in riskier forms of sexual activity. And she, she replied, as per your specific question in regard to masturbation, I think that is something that is a part of human sexuality and it's a part of something that perhaps should be taught. But we've not even taught our children the very basics. And I feel that we have tried ignorance for a very long time and it's, t and it's time we try education. I don't think she said anything even inappropriate. She wasn't like, let's teach masturbation. They asked her a specific question about it and she answered it. Yeah, I would say really she well. she actually wasn't super advocating for masturbation. Yeah, she, she wasn't was, like. She made a slight, um, and I remember this, I, you know, the slight kind of, you know, suggested. Like normal. And that was it. And we're talking about the 1990s people. Right. We can't even handle masturbation as an overall culture and society in the 1990s okay. um, under a democratic, you know, presidency, which usually is a little bit more progressive in these sexual, you know, issues. And it's just shocking. And she's a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And of course, the um, American Association for Pediatric, the American, yeah. 
whatever, the Pediatric Association right here in the United States has been normalizing masturbation since I believe the 1950s, right? So this is 40 years later, 40 plus years later, and she still can't say, I mean, this, this just lets you know how, what a hold uh, we have here in the United States in regards to Christian uh, theology, Judeo-Christian theology, because the, the Jewish folks also um, see masturbation as a, as a form of a sin. Uh, again, I think you see that more in Orthodox Judaism, but we are a Judeo-Christian founded country. And we have not been able to separate sexuality and science from religion very well at all, which is an age old problem anyway, right? That's, I mean, isn't it Galileo, right? Who got burned at the stake or something because he had the audacity to say that the world was round. And so, um, and it's interesting as you show some of these, you know, slides, some of these people were physicians. This was like, this was when, mm -hmm. and of course they say also they were religious physicians, right? Catholic physician yeah. who says blah, 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 blah. Right. And um, so there's, a, there's also another big history and we see this even with Jody Hildebrand and some of the, you know, issues that we've seen just this last summer where there are physicians, clinicians, people within the sciences that are not able to let go of their religious bias. And so they kind of try to meld them together in ways that are usually pretty harmful. What, what I always find, you know, somewhat, I guess, comforting is that in science, even when we get it wrong, because we do, it's not like science has the we, we've done some horrific things in the names of science, just like we've done some horrific things in the name of religion as humans, right? But in general, in science, you are rewarded for proving people wrong, right? right. The, the evidence-based system is like, you'll get a Nobel Prize if you can prove that the last person was wrong <laughs> and you have new, new evidence and theories and things that will, you know, that will get us at least on the right path. In religion, it's almost the opposite, you are rewarded for holding on to the old tradition and to the mythology and you're seen as prideful or sinful or, you know, wanting to, you know, make yourself important if you're trying to go against religion, yeah. religious leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't correct as, as quickly at all. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really far behind the, yeah, like, like Holland was saying, like we're way back here, but we're we'll eventually get there. <laughs> well, and they're forced to by society, not because right. they want to. Yeah. yeah. Wait, so going back to the story with uh, Joycelyn, do you want to finish? Do you want to read that last paragraph? Um, yeah. So her comments on masturbation caused great controversy and resulted in elders losing the support of the White House. It's very interesting because this was President Clinton who yeah. clearly mm -hmm. had no problems with. Um, Maybe could have used the masturbation himself. Maybe, yeah. maybe that would have saved some uh, <laughs> embarrassment for him and, and his staff. Um, anyway, Clinton's yes. chief of staff, Leon Panetta, remarked, there have been too many areas where the president does not agree with her views. This is just one too many. So uh, she was forced to resign by President Clinton in 1994. This led sex-positive retailer Good, Good Vibrations. <laughs> Good. Good Vibrations in 1995 to proclaim May 28th as National Masturbation Day in honor of elders' advocacy. I thought that was a fun last little bit that there's a there's a day um, set aside for this because we just see it as as wrong. Um, but also, yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit here. She's saying because there, where did she say that? The means of preventing young people from engaging in riskier forms of sexual activity, and I think we could have broadened that to say 
Like, do you have any, do you, can you speak to that where masturbation can help? Cause I, cause I think a lot of the problems are, I, yeah, I perceive a lot of the problems in the church or like Catholicism or other religions where when you repress your sexuality, you, it comes out in unhealthy ways. Mm-hmm. And so like, can you speak to that at all about, about how masturbation could help in Pre- any of the Prevent ways? sexual yeah. abuse even. Yeah. I mean, masturbation has so many benefits, right? But um, probably, yeah, number one benefit, which is kind of what I talked about when I wrote my initial blog, is that if we don't want people to have relational types of sexuality at certain types of certain times of their life or, um, you know, whether they're too young or they're just not married, you know, because it doesn't go along with your values or whatever, then what better tool do we have for sexual release? I mean, your body doesn't know you're Mormon, right? Your body doesn't know you're Catholic. Your body doesn't know if you're 15 or, you know, 50. Well, it's parts of your body do. My knees know. But anyway, (laughs) your body doesn't know if you're married or not, right? And so your body has a sexual drive. Most people have a sexual drive. Of course, we do have asexual folks, a gray sexual folks, where that may be very diminished um, and not as of interest to them. But you know, they fall in about like one to 3% of the population. So the majority of people have an active burgeoning sexual drive, which, and sexual curiosity can happen very soon. You know, I think if a toddler is um, touching their genitals, it may be more for a self-soothing benefit than a sexual benefit. But I, I mean, I remember reaching orgasm. I wouldn't have known it was orgasm. I don't know that it was that sexual for me, that from early ages, three to four years old, and it would help me go to sleep. And I pretty much remember masturbating almost nightly, you know, to uh, just to, as I was going to sleep, it felt good. I didn't know it was sexy or I didn't have, you know, kind of like sexual thoughts that would get me there. It just felt good to rub my body in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. So our bodies. Yeah. and, and, And so one of the benefits is that you have a release for your sexual drive that is personal, that doesn't involve anybody. You don't have to, Mm -hmm. you know, coerce anybody to have sex with you. You don't have to have sex before you're ready to have sex. You don't have to, um, you know, meet somebody's need because everybody can meet their own need at some level. You know, there's not all of this like pressure cooker thing set up where, you know, you, you have to like just not have a sexual drive, just not be a sexual person until you're in certain situations, which quite frankly, some people never even get married or, there's all kinds of reasons why that might happen. So um, I, I think that one of the benefits is that, first of all, you get to know your own body. You get to know what it feels good. You get to know what, you know, how you may want to, um, in essence, like coach somebody else to touch your body later in life when you are ready to be sexual. You're in charge of your own orgasm. Um, so there's huge benefits. Plus, yes, I do think, especially with, um, we know that a big reason why people might sexually perpetrate, especially if they're younger, like to a younger sibling or cousin, or, um, you know, they're not very sexually developed yet themselves is because there's proximity, there's availability. And, and if you're, I, I can't tell you how many people I've worked with where it's like, well, I didn't want to masturbate, but I rubbed up against my sister, right? Or I rubbed up against my cousin, which now causes, you know, some family possible trauma. You know, sometimes yeah. these 
kids are playing together, like playing doctor and things like that. And so it's not necessarily as traumatic, but it can be confusing because nobody's teaching anybody how to access appropriate sexual pleasure and sexual release in ways that are not going to harm other people. You know, we just say, don't do it, turn it off. And yeah, sorry, but I, I don't know that we have found any way to turn off human sexuality, right? That's just not a turn offable thing. So it it can create a lot of situations where people are, um, you know, behaving sexually inappropriate. Um, Of course, you know, there's other reasons why people perpetrate as well, but that can be a typical reason, especially if you're younger. So as far as other benefits, I mean, do you want me to go into this right now? Sure, yeah, at at any point, yeah. Okay, so there's so many benefits. I'm going to start with individual benefits. And this is this is another thing is that we don't teach sexuality from a lens of individuality. Sexuality is always taught from the perspective of couplehood, marriage, right. being right. with another person. And that is the first mistake. That's the first mistake. Because like when I was three and four years old, I wasn't coupled. <laughs> right? I, was, I was having a relationship with my own body right? I was having a relationship with my own body. And when you tell people do not have a relationship with your own body, somehow separate yourself from your own body, you are setting them up for a lot of potential issues, whether it's grooming or just, you know, not understanding your own pleasure, you know, um, basically, and we get this, especially if you're born as a, you know, with a, with a vagina and you're socialized as a girl, you're oftentimes given this message that, you know, a male will awaken your sexuality, right? So you're kind of like giving something away that you have very little power or control over. And then we wonder why women, you know, sometimes struggle with desire, you know, and because we're not really taught to have our own desire. We're taught to really be in relationship with somebody else at all times. Um, So that's, so, so I'll just say there are individual reasons why masturbation and a relationship with your own body is very beneficial. And we need to knock off this ownership model. Somebody else owns my body, whether it's yeah, my parents own it because they get to drag me into the bishop's office or God owns it because he's looking down at me disapprovingly every time I touch my, my hoo-ha or whatever. And then I, and then you have like, you know, and eventually my, my partner and, you know, in, in church, it's a husband, right. Or a wife, if you're a man that will own my sexuality and that will monitor it and that will have a right to it. That really right. have a lot of entitlement, a lot of coercion, a lot of harm. We have to start by letting our children know that their bodies belong to themselves first and foremost. Parents don't have a right to their bodies. I mean, obviously when they're little, you know, you have to say, well, I need to help you wipe or I need to help you bathe, but eventually you're going to learn how to do this on your own. And the only reason it's appropriate I'm touching you in these places now is to help you because you're little, right? But these are your parts. These are your parts. This is, this is your body. And then as they get older, you get to teach them about how does your body work and how does, you know, how does pleasure work? And here's this really, you know, fun and kind of a force to be reckoned with, which is your sexual drive. And, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And you can always take care of yourself always. So if somebody rejects you or if you're not ready or, you know, whatever those things are, you know, imagine a teenager who's like thinking, Oh, I'm feeling kind of, you know, horny and I'm feeling kind of um, like, I'd like to go further, but I'm a little scared. I'm a little worried. 
Um, then you have the pressures of like, oh, if I don't say yes, are they going to think I'm weird or are they going to break up with me or they, you know, all those things. And you have a teenager who's confident and goes, yeah, this is fun and this is lovely, but I'm not ready for intercourse. Um, so we can either play together in ways that are not intercourse specific, or I can go home and take care of myself. I don't need you. Mm -hmm. I don't need you to awaken this or to offer this to me. Um, that's a very powerful place for teenagers to be able to contract their sexual development and their sexual explorations in ways that feel safe to them. And then also respect other people's consent, right? And other people's right. desires, which is something we really fail at with sexual education of teens. So, um, and, and, and so anyway, that's, and, and eventually I get to share my body, right? Mm -hmm. So that's different than somebody gets to own my body. I get to decide who I want to share my body with and how and when. And then that becomes hopefully a beautiful negotiation with somebody you care for or love or even want to have casual sex with, right? But whatever whatever that desire is, you're doing it from a space of I'm sharing myself from my own volition and my own consent, not because I have to, I'm, you know, I'm duty bound because now I'm your wife or I'm you know, a caretaker and I can't hurt your feelings and you know, all these things that we have going on in the culture. So right off the bat, masturbation helps with self-ownership. Um, along with that, uh, we know that master, well, masturbation and or sexual release. So some of these benefits come from coupled sexuality too. But again, not everybody has coupled sexuality always available to them. So benefits that we have from sexual release is uh, management of chronic pain, Sex helps with chronic pain. Wow. Menstrual cramps as a teenage, you know, young person or something, you can masturbate and that will actually help you. And those contractions that, you know, you have through orgasm, if you reach orgasm, will help with pain management. Um, management of stress, you know, a huge mm -hmm. stressor. Um, management of um, helping with sleep. It helps you go to sleep right? So lots of people do that. Um, for some, it can increase your pelvic floor health because again, you're using those muscles. So it's like any muscle. If you're not, if you're, if you're not using your biceps, they get weak. If you're not using your pelvic floor muscles, they get weak. Well, having orgasmic contractions is a way that you help your pelvic floor. Um, it can increase self-esteem because again, you feel powerful. You feel that's, of course, if you're in a sex positive affirming space, right? Mm -hmm. You can self-esteem, of course, if you're being told that you're a sinner and that you're good for nothing right. and that you're committing a sin next to murder, right? Then it doesn't help your self-esteem. Right. Yeah. No, then that's <laughs> If you're being told all these things that, oh, this is helpful and you get to own your own body and all that, it helps your self-esteem. It helps you feel good about yourself and your body and how it responds and all of that. Um, there's potentially lower odds of prostate cancer for people who have penises, right? So they will be able, I think there's like a certain amount of ejaculation that should happen a month for a male body um, to help, you know, that be the case. So uh, does that mean that your partner has to give you all that sex? Because right. that's an entitlement, right? So yeah, whether it's a partner yeah. or whether it's solo, and of course, a lot of men, especially as they get older, sometimes they're widowed or they're divorced. And so they're solo anyway. That's a wonderful way to manage that. Um, but there are also, oh, and it also can increase, um, body image, um, benefits, right. For people to feel good about their body and 
how their body responds and that it has this capacity for pleasure and all of that. There are uh, also reasons why you might have certain sexual dysfunction where we want you to masturbate, right? This was how I, as a sex therapist, a lot of times I would be like, oh, you're anorgasmic, right? Like I'd have an LDS woman come in and say, yeah, I've been married for 15 years. I haven't had an orgasm. Well, guess what the best standards of care is, is to start getting her to masturbate, right? And to figure out her own body and how do you tell an LDS woman, right? Or an Orthodox <laughs> Jewish woman or, you know, whoever that, oh, this would actually be helpful when it doesn't go along with their values, right? So I'd have to kind of finagle or find other ways if they weren't open to that. So they're missing out on a treatment plan that could benefit them, right? This is also true for premature ejaculation. If they masturbate right before they have coupled intercourse, they're usually able to last longer. Um, so there are things that can be helpful in that regard. Vaginismus even, you know, to help relax the muscles. Um, so many things. So then, and then there's partnered benefits. See, this is another thing, right? That we've been taught like that pornography will ruin your family, that pornography will, you know, ruin everything or masturbation will ruin everything. Or we see it almost as a betrayal. If you're touching your own body, you're cheating on me, right? And I'm like, mm -hmm. Wow, again, that that's that ownership mentality, right? You can see how your body belongs to me and you can't even touch your own body because now you're being unfaithful to me. Um, mm -hmm. so that's really problematic. But we see a lot of benefits in helping couples bridge libido divides, right? Like if somebody has a higher libido and somebody has a lower libido, well, one person can masturbate to help bridge that divide. You know, that, that can be very helpful. It can increase orgasm and partnered play. It increases stimulation. It increases another way to have sex. You know, we think of sex sometimes as intercourse. I'm like, that's one type of sex, right? But there's lots of other types of sex. And a lot of times, especially for female bodies, having some type of masturbatory where, you know, where either the, um, where she's digitally um, stimulating herself, even if she's being penetrated or having other sexual activities happen at the time will greatly increase her ability to have an orgasm. Um, it stops this kind of duty obligatory sexual practices that we have that are so harmful and can lead to PTSD. And, um, and what about when partners are unavailable? We've got partners on military deployments. We've got partners who maybe have, you know, work, they travel a lot for work. Um, and, and they just had a baby and they, they just had a baby. There's health issues, you know, that, that keep one person from... <laughs> from being, you know, cancer treatments oftentimes will kill people's drive or, you know, you've had surgery, you can't have sex, but right. your other partners more than able to take care of themselves. So yeah. the so, are found. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, so a lot of these slides we're going to talk about are, are quotes from, from church leaders talking about the, um, what's the opposite of benefit of the, so, the, the risks, the risks of the masturbating. Negatives. Are there from, from a, from your position as a mental health or sex therapist, are there any negative effects to masturbating? We have not really seen any negative effects to masturbating other than self-fulfilling stories, right? Like what people believe about okay. masturbation. So that's, if you believe something will hurt you, then you're more apt to see that there, you know, there are a few cases and these are very far and few between where, you know, I think impulsivity and compulsivity can be things that can affect any human behavior. And so if you have a person who's masturbating, let's say, you know, 20 times a day, and now they've reached a point where their genitals are actually raw or sore or things like that, that 
that might be a reason to say, okay, well, why is this kind of out of balance with the rest of your life? But again, those are those are cases that are far and few between. Mm-hmm. And usually it's not masturbation that's the issue. It's whatever is driving their compulsive kind of behavior towards masturbation mm-hmm. uh, or impulsive behavior. And so those are important to have correct assessment, you know, mental health assessment and treatment for, which again, the sex addiction model does not do. It just treats everything like an addiction and that's how they get treated instead of un- treating these underlying assessments that don't usually even get done. So, so I think you've said this before, but ma- there's no way that a person can be addicted to masturbating. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. The, I mean, addiction is just the incorrect language. It's just okay. incorrect language. So can, like I said, can there be somebody who might have a compulsive or impulsive relationship with their sexuality and masturbation may be a part of that? That is possible. But addiction is kind of this model that was that's been developed around substances, right? Where you insert something into your body that wasn't naturally there, like cocaine or alcohol or um, you name it, <laughs> opiates. And so that's not a natural occurring thing within you. And now over time, your body has developed a dependence on that chemical to the point that if you remove the chemical, and some sometimes it can be so drastic to remove the chemical that you can die. I don't know that people know that you can die if you quit cold turkey sometimes if you're bad enough of an alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, because your body has has developed this dependence on it. Um, and that's why people will, you know, I, I started in drug addiction uh, and, and opiates and narcotics. And so people were in my office like shaking because they were going through withdrawal. They were throwing up because they were going through withdrawal. I've never had anybody throwing up and shaking because they stopped masturbating or looking at porn. (laughs) That's what I mean. It's different. It it follows a different model. And and I think colloquially, we use the word addiction way too loosely anyway. You know, I'm a chocoholic. I'm a shopaholic. I'm a thisaholic, workaholic. So do we as humans oftentimes have issues with balance, with work, with how we spend money, with how we eat, with how we have sex, for sure, for sure. But treating that through this like dependence model, where what, what do you what do you mostly hear when you hear about addict? Once an addict, always oh, an addict. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're being taught that your relationship with your sexuality is sick, it's ill, and that will always be the case. And you are taught to talk about it like I've been sober from masturbation for 45 days. I've been, you know, I'm on the way. And I'm like, this is how you're talking. This is how you've been taught to talk about your relationship with your body and your sexuality. And what we also know about the addiction model, especially with sexuality, but even the addiction model in general, is that it's very Christian based. You know, it's very much about having a higher power. So it has a lot of bias in it baked in from a religious lens from the get-go. And that's not necessary. I mean, I think that definitely there's lots of people who have benefited from AA and NA and, and things of that nature, but we are starting to understand addiction more, that that's not the only way you can get help um, is to go through a 12-step program. And um, and again, there's underlying things that um, these Oftentimes it's the group that is so helpful because you're, right. you're having people that you're connected to and human connection is huge when it comes to 
a lot of, you know, solving a lot of these problems, but, um, so AA and things like that have that, but, you know, again, they're, a lot of these sexual addiction groups are functioning from the place that you really shouldn't be masturbating at all. You should only be having sex through marriage. Um, you know, of course there shouldn't be any erotic materials involved. And and if you don't, if you don't uh, comply with that, you're seen as being in denial, being resistant, you know, not really being serious about your treatment. And if you're married and your spouse is feeling like, see, you're not taking your treatment seriously because you're not following Jody Hildebrandt's advice to (laughs) yourself for six months, you can see how this starts creating a lot of um, artificial problems. They're not real problems. They're artificial problems that are causing huge distress, that cause divorce, that cause, um, negative self-esteem that cause internalized shame that interfere with orgasm and sexual desire and pleasure uh, that enhances secrecy and problematic behaviors. Um, it's just, yeah, big problem. Yeah. Thank you. So like, so I think that's super, super interesting. Um, let me see, going back to the slides really quick. Let me, okay. So one of the ones that um, Bruce Arbor he was talking about how his, this is in Mormon doctrine. He talks about, I don't know if I should read this whole thing. He says the treatment offered by unwise practitioners, however, sometimes has the effect of keeping sinners from repenting. So I thought that was also interesting because like, I think he understands that people like you, if, if, um, people, if people go to you, you'll say, oh, it's okay to be queer. It's okay to, to masturbate and things like that. And so he's, he's encouraging, um, mistrust of these, um, practitioners. Do you have any thoughts about that? And Yeah, this is exactly why so many, and you can find quotes like this from evangelical pastors, you can find quotes like this from so many ecclesiastical leaders that as the field of psychiatry and and psychology and social science has, you know, continued to develop, that there's this fear that it's, it's it's an alternative option to what they have to offer a church. Right. And that they don't always go hand in hand. What we're finding out through social science is not supporting always what you're figuring out at church. The social components are, you know, one of the, I mean, a lot of folks who are religious um, end up doing better in regards to uh, mental health, mainly for community protective uh, factors, right? Because churches are very good at supporting, you know, if somebody dies, if you're having a baby, you know, the community is like really important to come in there and, and, and have people to help you through life, raising your kids, etc. But when it comes to um, sexuality, I think science, social science and religion have been at, you know, wrestling together for a very long time about what, what is useful. In, in some religions, this is also true medically, right? Like you have some religions who are against blood transfusions. Um, you have some religions that are against, you know, maybe um, putting somebody on life support, you know. So you have, you have sometimes some religions that will also wrestle with medical health. Um, and of course, now we have with gender affirming care, a mixture of sexual and medical health which most religions are having a lot of trouble supporting, you know, what is actual good standards of hair care health that the WPATH guidelines just came out, you know, with their newest um, version of that. Um, and, and I think you had mentioned this where the care that they need will help depression and suicidality drop 
dramatically, much more so than we can say antidepressants or even talk therapy will help. It's just getting the treatment you need to be um, aligned with your identity, right? And, and with your body into lower body dysmorphia and all of those things. So, uh, yeah, so this is not new. And yes, the Mormon church has a history for sure of being anti-psychiatry. I think in the 90s, we started seeing a little bit of a shift with that. Um, we tried to come up with our own mental health chapter, right? LDS Family Services, which really started off as an adoption center for unwed mothers, but then they started having clinicians who would agree to practice therapy in ways where they wouldn't have to worry about sending somebody to, to, to someone who might disagree with church standards. And, and just to clarify one little thing that you said, you know, and this is, I think something of, of this is important for therapists to be trained is how to be a uh, culturally, religiously competent therapist. You know, if somebody comes in and I've made all these mistakes, by the way, so I've made all the mistakes and learned the hard way when people fire me. And I'm like, yeah, that they probably had a right to fire me as a clinician. But if like, if I have an LDS young man who's getting ready to go on his mission and he's coming in to help, to help him not masturbate, right? It is not my job to say it is okay if you masturbate. It is my job to say this is normal human behavior. And what are your values? What are your standards? And how are you going to make sense of those values and standards in accordance with something that we know is, is you know, normative for a human to be doing? Do you see the slight difference, right? Yeah. Just like it's not okay for a religious therapist to say, well, it's not okay that you masturbate, right? So yeah. this, is, this is the issue you have both with secular therapists and with with religious therapists is that they'll often put in their own personal bias instead of just saying, here's the information and how are you going to wrestle with that with your values, especially your religious values, right? So I remember telling a young man, um, oh, that's not a sin. You don't need to worry about that. And that was the last time he saw me. And, and I thought about that for years. You know, I was like that, even though I was trying to help him and I was trying to have him have less shame, I didn't meet him where his values were. And that was not appropriate either. That was just as inappropriate as somebody helping him pray and read scriptures as a therapist to help him not masturbate. Right. Yeah, that's a good clarifying thing. That's, and that reminds me of what uh, Joyce Lynn Elders, this um, pediatrician who was fired from the White House, where it's, she didn't even, even in what she said, she wasn't even saying, oh, everyone should do this. She just said, this is normal human behavior, just like you said, and mm -hmm. we should educate people about this. Like, mm -hmm. It's like all she educate. She really just, just said yeah. any education is better than what we're doing. Right. So literally yeah. just teach abstinence in schools yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, so I actually in in BYU Idaho, I was going to school there, and I was struggling with I these similar ideas, and I went to my therapist and said that I was struggling with this. I was in a major depression because I couldn't stop. Um. And the first therapist that I went to was like, oh, that's normal. Like, and then he like started talking about his wife and, and hit her sexuality. And it was really uncomfortable for me. Cause I was like, what are you talking about? Like this, this makes no sense to me. Looking back, it was that kind of a situation where I was, where like what I needed to hear was not necessarily what was, is actually true. 
right? Like that, like, yeah, it should be fine and, and it's normal and yada, yada. I, that's not where I was mentally mm -hmm. or spiritually or emotionally. So, and so I went to a different therapist and I actually didn't tell her that was my problem. I just told her that I was struggling with, um, depression and we, we went, took a different route and it was much more helpful, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Dang. yeah, that's the very, yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the church leaders have not done that because they're, they're, they'll push their, like what he's doing. Like, listen to us. Don't listen to these people. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's whose authority is going to win, right? A, a clinician's mm -hmm. authority that says this is normal. And in fact, I would even recommend it, you know, or kind of prescribe it per se, or is the person who claims to have authority directly from God, which is the all and all being, you know, divine source going to win. And that's why when, when you're working with religious folks, you're, you know, I always tell clinicians that I'm training, you're not going to trump God, you know, you're people's ideas about what God is and who God is and what God thinks you should do and how you should live your life is something that you have to be really sensitive about with people because your, you know, wallpaper degree is not going to trump um, oftentimes what is happening, which is why, of course, I was being such an advocate because I'm like, the leaders have to change what they're saying because the lay yeah. people oftentimes are, especially in a in a strict religion like ours, which is almost fundamental, there's not a lot of leeway for having discussion or for having your, your ecclesiastical authority be wrong or somebody that you can disagree with, right? In right. more progressive religions, there's more room for conversation, there's more room for disagreement and debate. That's not the case with fundamental strict and conservative religions. Right. So you have people who are willing to kind of do it the cafeteria way. You know, you've heard of cafeteria Mormons where they're like, well, you know, I love the gospel and I love these things. I'm just going to ignore these other things that I don't agree with. And then you have other people who are like, it doesn't matter if I agree with it or not. I have to do it all because this right. is coming directly from God and who am I to challenge God? But really the intermediaries, these men who quite frankly in our church at least are, are severely uneducated when it comes to mental health when it comes to sexual health, you know, m most of them are lawyers or businessmen or every now and then you'll get a physician. Even, I mean, it's, it's surprising to me with somebody like the current prophet, who's a surge, top surgeon in the world, and he can't even normalize masturbation. I'm like, give me a freaking break. Like that's just <laughs> 101, right? Like, so it's just, it's just interesting how people can compartmentalize, even when they are in the field of medicine. Um, right. They'll just say, yeah, that, but, but we'll just ignore that part that most physicians would totally agree with. Most physicians these days, I go to the university or I go to, uh, yeah, University of Utah and my kid goes to IHC and every time we go see their doctors, they've got like pride flags on their lapels, Yay. right? So medicine is on the side of sexual health for the most part and depends on where you are. Yes, it depends where you are. Right. Well, it's I would say medicine is on the side of it. Politics would get in the way of medicine. That's oh, not, yeah. not well yeah. what I mean by that is uh we live in the sort of the south and uh so I went to the doctor one time for a COVID test and back when, you know, COVID was a big deal. And um anyway, they I told her that I was struggling with uh paying for the bill because it was gonna be like 
$300 for this stupid visit that I just had COVID by the way, but she wanted to do all these tests anyway. So she asked me, Oh, um, have you talked to your church? Like, can your church help you pay for your medical bills? And I was so confused. Cause I was like, you're a doctor. Why are you asking me? Like, so I have to have a church help me pay for my medical bills. And like the one of there's two major um, hospital chains here. And one of them is called mercy and it is very Christian anyway. So my point is <laughs> yeah. they are not going to be very progressive. They, and they just, yes. it's, it's a weird, weird twisted world down here in my opinion, but yeah, it's med medical providers who are unable to leave their religious bias behind, including hospital systems. You know, you've got Catholic hospitals who will not offer certain types of birth control or, of course, the abortion debate, you know, which, you know, a lot of times is life, you know, it's life saving for the mother. I mean, we, we have so many issues where this intersection between medicine and religion and science is just a big debacle. It's a big, it's a big mess. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a mess. And I wish, I wish it was like, well, and church and state is still way too much gray area, but I wish it was like church and medical as well. Like, let's keep them separate and like, let's just approach medical things with, me, you know, with a medical brain and mm -hmm. keep, keep your religion out of it. Cause yeah. I don't, I don't need your prayers as my doctor. I need you to help me with this medical thing that is medical, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're, 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 we've only got a little bit of time left. So I want to, these are just, again, these are just the myths. Um, one of them, and this is not, he's not the only one that said this, but uh, he says that um, uh, sometimes masturbation is the introduction to the more serious sins of exhibitionism and the gross sin of homosexuality. So he's, exhibition. um, yeah. And the exhibitionism, I didn't know what that meant, but um, it says a compulsion to display one's genitals to other or other intimate body parts or to behave, behave or to behave sexually in public. So I, the, I thought that was really interesting too. Flashers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that if, if there was a correlation there, we'd have a lot of ex exhibitionism going on. Or a lot more gay people. <laughs> like, <there's> the... <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and, and this, this is, is just insulting. So he says, do you, do you want to read the whole thing? Yeah. He says, are parents willing to answer to God at judgment day for the violation of his moral law and the laws of health, which cause handicapped bodies and retarded mentality for his choice spirit children? That's just insulting. Mm -hmm. You young men and women and parents of the church cannot follow the practices of the world. You are not of the world, so choose and dare to be different. Avoid immodesty of dress, familiarity, masturbation, petting, and other perversions which lead to sex sins. And this is Delbert L. Stapley in 1966. Yeah. 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 You can see the level of anxiety and fear around a normal bodily function is very, very high. Very yeah. High. Yeah, that's yeah, it's frustrating because um putting fear around something that should be normal causes a lot of twisted behaviors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can just kind of buzz through some of these. Um you've come in contact early with masturbation. Uh yes, yes, yeah. in the womb. <laughs> the womb. He, talks about, he talks about how we, if we masturbate, we become slaves to the flesh. I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um and he talks, Kimball, I think just, and the miracle of forgiveness is, is one of the, he must have had some interior things that he was struggling with. And he just yeah. put that on all the rest of us. This one I thought it was the most interesting. This is Marky Peterson in 1970. 
he gives like a sort of list of, I think it's mainly it's young a men. a guide to self-control so you can <laughs> overcome masturbation. Um, so all, of this, all of this was given to young men in the church. Everybody just pretended that women were sexual gatekeepers and submissive, you know, submissive yeah. vessels that would be sexed, sexed upon, you know, acted upon. Yeah. They were yeah. not yeah. agents. And so I've also talked to lots of women and I was one of them too, where if you were sexually curious, if you were masturbating, if you were interested, you almost felt like you were worse than the boys because oh, they're yeah. not telling the girls about this. So who, yeah. what am I, what's my problem, right? I'm right. like, the boys should be the only ones having sexual thoughts and desires, right? Exactly. Exactly. I remember in, I was in seminary and I looked and I searched and I searched and I searched trying to find somewhere to tell me whether this was okay or not because I couldn't like I was like I don't know this is my only sin if I can just figure out what I'm supposed to do if this is like the worst sin in the world what is going on and I searched and searched and searched and and like I was never taught anything about it I looked in the straight for strength of youth pamphlet and it just gives this very vague wording yeah. and so I like I eventually decided it must be a horrible thing Right. But like there that I wish they'd given me this guide to self-control because at least I would have known what was expected of me because it was so vague, yeah. you know. Well, yeah. like here he's, he gives a list. He's like, keep your bladder empty, wear tight pajamas that are harder to like get off of you. Keep a Book of Mormon in your hand, like tie your hand to the bed frame, wear several layers of clothing. Like they're just trying so hard to to keep these keep the, these youth, I think, specifically from doing something that's super normal. Um, yeah. And then this one is like you were saying, this one was also given to young men only. And they talk about men have a little factory and, and that he shouldn't, uh, he shouldn't turn the factory on or like fondle himself or whatever. Yeah. Um, he's like, and then he's also giving different, um, lists of things like skip a meal fast. Um, and then it can taper your desire for this temptation. And anyway, so yeah, I just, this just very problematic. Um, and then again, the church's stance today. So they don't, I think, I thought they had previously used the word masturbation in, and for the strength of youth, but I think maybe you're right. Maybe it was just always vague. Maybe you'll know, maybe you'd know more about that, Natasha, but I, I believe if I remember correctly, I think it did, you know, originally have the word masturbation in it. And that was changed to and just, say, you know, you shall not do anything that will arouse the sexual faculties or, you know, whatever language they use. And then now I think this is the, the recent one, which is kind of similar. Yeah. Powerful. Don't do anything outside of marriage to arouse the powerful emotions that must be expressed only in marriage, which I mean, that's interesting that they talk about emotions. It's not just emotions right. that happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's physical, there's physiology that's involved, you know, and, um, and so again, it's what they're basically saying. And, and I've worked with many people who are, you know, OCD and scrupulous and kind of trend towards anxiety disorders where they take this stuff very seriously. And if you're expected to not have any thoughts or any behavior that would arouse sexual feelings, how do you even go outside? I mean, I remember this, this young gentleman who would like walk to work and he would walk like probably two miles out of his way so that he wouldn't come across certain billboards or certain, because it, you know, it had an arousal thing. And then of course, if you're more focused on it, that's going to even enhance the, you know, oh no, oh no. Whereas if you're just kind of taught 
yeah, this is, you know, you're going to come across as material. This is how you manage it. It's not that big of a deal. Most people walk by a billboard, even if it's a little bit titillating without any major problems. But this, yeah, this is so problematic. Just the, the idea is basically be asexual until you're married heterosexually, and then somehow magically turn your sexuality on and have righteous holy sex. That's the directions <laughs> of the church. <laughs> well, this yeah. reminds me of, um, is it Oaks that um, you talked to, you did a TikTok on this where um, he was making more pornography than. Um, oh yeah. With that's one thing. Um, I, I don't know if this is super accurate, but like, it seems to me like the church is creating more pornography than the porn industries. Cause the porn industries, it's like, if like, it's just naked, you know, you're just naked. But like the, like if you, the church is like, oh, they need to not show their shoulders and they need to not show their thighs and they need to like, they, I don't know, just all the regulations. So just by showing your shoulders, you are pornography. Right. So, so and you walk outside and everyone's pornography now, instead of the people who are actually um, like, naked and having active sex like that's considered pornography but according to the church anyone who's you know oh your cleavage is showing you are pornography yeah. and now yeah. a person who's struggling to you know that like that man walking down the street he's like that is too titillating for me now this person in front of me who should be a human person is now pornography right yeah, yeah. no i i would i would agree with that that may that can be a little bumper sticker LDS church number one creator of pornography <laughs> so before you go I wanted to ask um so there are people out there that are in in a mixed faith family or a mixed faith relationship and where they have either themselves have this opinion or they're raising children with with these two different mindsets of one being not in the church and one being in the church how do you how do you navigate um that kind of thing with children or with relationships like if one of you thinks that masturbating is wrong one of you thinks it's okay or if you if you want the child to understand, like as you said, as a as a therapist, you say you you meet them where they're at. Um, so how do you how do you I don't know how to I'm just gonna open that to however you answer that. How yeah. do you No, it's it's tricky, right? It's it's tricky and it's hard, especially if as parents you're raising children with different sexual ideas or ideals or standards. We do have more mixed faith couples than ever. Um, and then, of course, this happens with divorce as well, right? So if one parent has, you know, is teaching certain things in their home and the, and the other parent is teaching other things. Um, my general thought is that all parents have a right to teach their children, right? So not just the conservative parent and not just the progressive parent. So hopefully they can come up with a way to explore how they're going to do this. I think a lot of times in the church, it, it almost feels like the religious person has the right to parent the children and the non-religious does not. So I'm not a proponent of that. I think all parents have a right, um, including the religious parent and including the less religious or non-religious parents. So um, that's a lot of, you know, if, if they were going to come in and see me again, I would offer a lot of information. I would say, well, um, there are many religions that have a lot of standards around sexuality, right? And and that's perfectly fine. Everybody has a right to their religious freedom and their re religious ideals. I can offer you some information, you know, um, when it comes to masturbation. And it's interesting, even in the church, and um, I think it's called a parent's guide, something that a lot of people don't even know exists. But it's called the parent's guide. It's like a little parenting correlated manual that's out there. 
um, they will say something around masturbation that if you catch your kids touching themselves uh, prior to like young women's age, young men's age, like 11, 12, just it's pretty normal for kids to touch themselves and kind of ignore it and don't make a big deal about it. That's what a parent's guide in the church says. But then once they're once they're adolescents, you know, or starting puberty, then at that point you want to teach them kind of more of these things that we've been talking about. So I, I usually kind of point that out just to kind of give them a resource that maybe challenges some of their own ideas about what the church is saying. Um, <clears throat> but I will say, you know, these these are the risks of taking kind of a strict approach with your children. And, you know, and these are the risks of taking a very permissive approach with your children. So, you know, my recommendation would be to take a sexual comprehensive approach to your children where you also you know, talk to them about your values. And then are your values about really like certain acts or are your values really more about principles? And we have this in, in religious circles too, right? You always have the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And if you read any interesting scripture story, it's because somebody's basically picking the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. I mean, that's really why the scripture story is interesting to begin with. You know, somebody's killing somebody or lying to somebody or, you know, doing something they shouldn't be doing according to the commandment, but for a larger purpose, right? And of course, the New Testament is chock full of this. This is what Jesus was doing on the daily, right? It's like, well, I'm not following that rule because really there's this bigger thing that might be more important, right? Like, should I keep the Sabbath or should I heal this person? Hmm, right? So I, I try to kind of point that out and that um, kids will, you know, the statistics are that, you know, 80 to 90% of teens and even preteens are touching their body. Um, here's some information on what shame does. Here's some information on, you know, kids who are shamed typically just start hiding things from their parents. Is that the kind of relationship you want to have with them or not? So again, I, I feel like I'm just, I'm presenting a lot of information, but at the end of the day, it's not my job to come up with your parenting plan, right? It's not mm -hmm. my job to decide what your values are going to be, but hopefully with this information and my recommendations, you can have at least more, more information to make those decisions from. That's really good. And that's what I try to always talk to my supervisees because we have a lot of anxiety as therapists. We're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to help these people? And how are we going to, you know, and I'm like, it's, you know, if you're having more anxiety than they are about their parenting plan or their marriage, <laughs> we're getting too invested <laughs> in, the, in the work, right? And that's tricky because I think we feel a lot of responsibility as therapists, yeah, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's let's add another question for you. So it, those of us who were raised with this idea of shame and guilt about your body and, and these things, what would you recommend as far as trying to release that feeling? Yeah. No, I love this question. And I actually have come up with a little equation because I'm so Mormon that way. So, <laughs> so, uh, so there's this model in sex therapy called the Plicit model. And I have come up with a little quip that kind of the Plicit model is like for therapists and how do therapists talk to their people about sex. And so I've kind of taken that and come up with my own little thing um, <clears throat> that I've even copyrighted and everything. But it's called give yourself the pep talk. Give yourself the pep talk. So what does the pep talk stand for? So the first P in the pep talk is permission. You have to start with permission. Permission to see yourself as a sexual being. 
permission to see yourself as autonomous, permission to see yourself as the owner of your own body, permission to have your own values and your own morals around sexuality versus this external authority that's always given it to you. you know, so permission to explore, permission to, you know, to just even to have pleasure, right? To, and forget sexual pleasure, just pleasure, right? I mean, I don't think we live in a society that really allows us to have a lot of pleasure. We're supposed to be productive and, you know, even, even sleeping longer than six or seven hours feels realistic, right? Or something. So, you know, giving yourself permission for pleasure. Um, And then the E, so PEP is education. You have to educate yourself. When you start, I mean, how many times have I heard somebody say, when I read your blog, it gave me the know-how or the knowledge to be able to take a different approach. And, and that shifted something, you know, so education is very powerful. That's the intellectual process. So even people who are hearing this today, it's like, oh, wow, this actually can benefit my life. These are the ways it can benefit me. Um, it can benefit my relationships. You know, it's actually normative human behavior. Like those are all educational pieces that are very important. Um, but education is basically intellectual, right? So you're starting with permission, you're, you're giving yourself intellectual permission. Now the third, the second P I think is where the rubber hits the road and that's practice. You have to practice it. And the reality is that if you're coming from a fundamental conservative, strict high demand religion, you're going to feel guilty at first. You just are. It's been programmed into you for so many years. It's kind of part of your wiring. And so you have to kind of just be willing to push through. I oftentimes, you know, make the metaphor of playing the violin. If I could pick up the violin today and just play this beautiful concerto, I'd be very motivated probably to pick up the the violin. (laughs) (laughs) But I know that if I pick up the violin, it's going to sound pretty squeaky for a long time. And I'm going to have to really work at it until my, until I'm programmed differently. And then it becomes more easier to me. And so just to be aware that, yeah, I might have some guilt. I might cry after I orgasm after the first time I've masturbated or used a vibrator. I might feel self-doubt. I might feel like, oh, maybe I am going down that slippery slope, you know, to hell and damnation. I might, you know, if I have a problem the next day after masturbating for the first time, I'm like, see, God's punishing me, right? Or I mean, you might have some of those things because we have been programmed for so long. Um, But as you practice it, as you do it more and more, which of course the church says this is bad because you're desensitizing yourself, right? But I say this is actually, that's right. You are desensitizing yourself and this is good. You're desensitizing yourself to guilt, right? And so the more you can do that, the easier it becomes. You're not as guilty. You're more able to enjoy pleasure, etc. So the talk part is just getting either that professional help and seeing somebody, you know, if, if that doesn't if you're, if you're doing all those things and it's not improving, I would recommend seeing a professional, going and talking to a therapist, or even just with other people like support groups. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be a professional space. A wonderful resource that's out there for female bodied individuals is omgs.com. That's very helpful in, in helping women who struggle with um May reaching orgasm. And of course, a lot of that information is about self-stimulation and um, learning how to, you know, touch your body and, and the types of um, 
like pressure and rhythm and things like that that can be very helpful for female bodies to, you know, have a sexual pleasure. So that's a great resource. Um, Betty Dobson was kind of like the mother of masturbation. Betty Dodson, D-O-D-S-O-N. And she wrote a book called um, Sex for One. And so, and she, you know, back in the day, she held seminars and classes where she would teach, you know, people to self-stimulate everything. She was, she was way ahead of her time. She was wonderful. <laughs> she, she has since passed <clears throat> in her older years, but um, anyway, so she's a good resource as well. Okay. Um, but yes, come as you are. I think most, most of the books that you'll find around sexuality will have components of self care, you know, self-masturbation and, and stimulation. So um, whether they're written for the general public or males or females or, you know, everybody in between. So. Okay. So thank you. So OMG, yes. Um, Sex for one. Um, come as you are. And then you said most of these books will have just this section in there about um, self-care yeah. and masturbation. Yeah. Most and stuff, books so. that talk about desire or sexuality will have, you know, components, even books that will, you know, like, am I normal that are more for kids, you know, as a parent, if you're wanting to, you know, like, am, am I normal is a pretty good general book. They'll have um, topics of masturbation and books written for teens will too, because like we talked about earlier, it's a great way to be in charge of your sexuality versus, you know, feeling pressure to be sexual with other people. Yeah, one of the things I learned about the ERA and women's rights was mind blowing. I learned this from the the documentary we were talking about, um, Sticky. Uh, one of the things that they talked about was uh, women being able to be in control of their own pleasure and masturbation. And I thought that was mind blowing. Like it's so empowering to be in control of your own sexuality. Um, yeah, that I don't know. When you really think about it, the it's really been quite a human story that for so many reasons, political, gender power, religious, um, we have really for so long tried to control whether or not a person with their own hands can touch parts of their own body, um, especially in the privacy of, of sleep and their own bedrooms and, and things of that nature. It just is mind boggling when you really think about it. You know, to the point that, yes, you know, people would, you know, strap hands to a bedpost or just the shame and the, <clears throat> and, and when you think about it historically, I think a lot of this has to do with the reason why sexual control was so important was primarily economically due to heritage. You know, we didn't have DNA tests to, to prove paternity. So the only way to really prove paternity was to control in particular, female sexuality, right? But everybody has had their sexuality controlled in one way or another. Yeah. And so it's just it's just really, really sad that there's been so much unnecessary suffering um, and so much unnecessary stigma around something so normal. as just, you know, if I want to suck my thumb, if I want to rub my ear, if I want to mm -hmm. my vulva, if I want to, you know, like, tick, you know, like bounce my leg, all these things that help that are just part of being human, that mm -hmm. are part of self-soothing, of, of self-autonomy. 
Um, I mean, even, you know, I mean, there's people who controlled being left-handed. I mean, we have just been so weird. We have been so weird as humans and trying to control other people's bodies instead of just Mm -hmm. letting bodies show up and, and and pernicious and if we're going to talk about evil, that's, I think, really evil to, to do this to other human beings. And we need to stop. We need to get educated and we need to stop and we need to do better by our children. Okay, so that was a really good place to stop. That was really, really good. I know you have other places to be, uh, but is there anything you want to say as like a final note or anything like that? <laughs> well, I'll just say, I mean, if you're if you're interested in more of what I can offer, you can always find me at natashahelfer.com. I work, of course, with individuals, couples, and families. I do have openings right now for new clients. Okay. I'm, you know, I I work with sex therapy, I work with faith transitions, I work with general mental health issues. Um, I I also do quite a bit of training. I've started this new project called learnreligiontherapy.com for therapists. If you get on there, you'll get a free religious kind of assessment tool to help with with your clients because I feel so passionate about training clinicians appropriately in regards to dealing with kind of religious issues. Um, So what, you know, I'm a supervisor for ASEX. So if you're interested in becoming a sex therapy, I can help you with that. A therapist, I can help you with that as well. So I whether you're an individual kind of out there in the world, you know, I've got a lot of resources, groups, webinars, um, even, you know, on my website, there's a library recommendations of books that I, you know, I have vetted and think are good. Um, but if you're also a professional, then there's lots of ways I can help you as well. So I'm trying to do it all a little bit. And um, you're on TikTok, right? I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Uh, it's usually, I think that at Natasha Helfer MFT, um, I run a group practice. So I train a lot of, you know, all my providers are trained to be sex positive and to be faith affirming and also, uh, faith transition affirming. Um, so we're symmetry counseling and we're super happy to, you know, if you can't work with me for whatever reasons, we have certain insurances that we'll work with, et cetera. So you can always look my, my, you know, for help at my group practice as well. Okay. So this has been really fun. Um, Thank you for coming on and hopefully we can have you again soon or we can ask our listeners to support you in whatever ways that they can. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for everybody listening, make sure you follow uh, Analyzing Mormonism on TikTok, on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. You're on Facebook, right? Patreon. Yeah. Patreon. That's an important one. So yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. You're so welcome. I'm always so glad to talk about something that's so important and and also hopefully fun and interesting to talk about as well. So take care, everybody, and have a great time stimulating yourself and and others if they're consensual. (laughs) Okay, thank you, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.